Awesome. Well, today, um, I'm really urgent to talk to us about accepted or rejected or declined. Have you ever, like, gone to the store and, and you put your credit card in and then it's almost like you feel you hit the jackpot when it says accepted? <laughs> because when it says declined, isn't it like a strange feeling? It's like, oh, my goodness. But um, I wanted to talk about accepted or declined, true or false worship. Is your worship accepted or is your worship declined when you come to God? We come to Him, we sing, we believe like, well, He's got to receive our worship, right? It's almost like He has to. It's almost like He has an option. He has no option. Now, if you're following our Bible reading challenge, you would, you would have noticed um, in the books of Moses that we've been covering um, how incredibly specific God is about His requirements when it comes to worship. How many of you, by a show of hands, have noticed that? Like, God was so extremely specific about exactly how we ought to come to Him and how we ought to worship. As a matter of fact, the kind of materials that He requires to be used to build the Ark of the Covenant, to build the tabernacle, the, the thread, the color, the size, the kind of wood, the amount of rings, what it's supposed, gold-plated, silver. I mean, everything was so extremely specific. The dimensions were so sp extremely specific. But then when it came to the priest going to sacrifice, I mean, now it's the kind of animal, the, it, how perfect the animal has to be and how to actually sacrifice this animal, when to do it. So if you think about it, God certainly has a standard when it comes to worshiping Him. We, on the other hand, we have this idea that we can come to God on our terms. We can come to God and worship Him however we feel is fit for that day. And we literally come to God and we give Him, we throw up whatever we want and we expect Him to accept it. But that is absolutely not the case in the Old Testament. It absolutely, as you can see, multiple people who came to Him, attempted to worship Him on their terms, died at the altar. <laughs> We're going to read about some of that. And so God has an incredibly high standard when it comes to offering up sacrifices and worship to Him. Now, we're currently uh, videoing, filming, and editing down the second year Bible school. For those of you who haven't done second year, you really want to do it. Currently going through the attributes of God. One of the attributes of God is the fact that He is immutable. Immutable. He is the same from eternity past to eternity future. He didn't become more gracious in the New Testament than in the Old Testament because if He became something He never was, then there was a time He wasn't this great. But He's always been great. He didn't suddenly drop his standards. He, God is no compromiser. He didn't suddenly start compromising in order to accept whatever you want to throw up to him. No, God has extremely high standards. Uh, there's another attribute of God which I love. It's the incomprehensibility of God. The incomprehensibility of God simply says this, that if you, can, if you believe that God is love, which he is, and if you use your imagination and you imagine the most loving God possible. The most loving God imaginable. Well, is eternally and incomprehensibly 
beyond what you can imagine. That is, that is who God is. Our minds cannot fathom just how holy He is. If you imagine the most holy possible God, your imagination can accommodate. He is immeasurably, eternally beyond what you can imagine. And so it is for every single one of these attributes of God. Now, what I want to say about that is that if you think about an unchanging God, an immutable God, He cannot mutate. He cannot become better. He cannot learn anything new. If He learned something new, that means He's not omniscient. So you cannot alter any one of the attributes because it touches every other attribute that He has. So I don't want to get too complicated regarding it. My point in this is that He is absolutely more constant than you believe that He is. He is not different in the New Testament than what He was in the Old Testament. He absolutely requires you and I to worship Him on His terms, not ours. So we're talking about, well then, does God accept or reject our worship? Now, it is a sobering thought to realize that throughout Scripture we see God rejecting people's worship consistently. Now, we never look at this because it's not an uplifting thought, but the Bible, as a matter of fact, starts with God rejecting Cain's worship in Genesis chapter 4. Remember, Cain killed his brother Abel. Why? Because God accepted Abel's worship and rejected Cain's. And then Cain went and killed his brother. Then we see God rejects Israel's worship in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 13. Look at what it says. God says to the Israelites, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. You're making an effort toward me, but stop it. It's detestable <laughs> because it was on their terms and not on God's. God is not pleased with Jerusalem's burnt offerings and their sacrifices in Jeremiah 6.20. It says, your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. In Malachi, we see God rejecting the worship He is not pleased with. It says in Malachi chapter 1 verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. He says in Amos that uh, he hates the religious festivals and their spiritual songs. In Amos chapter 5 verse 21, he says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. In Amos 5 23, he says, take away from me the noise of your songs. <laughs> to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. So God has an intense hatred toward Worship that is unacceptable to Him. And we have to find out what that is. We have to find out what the terms are upon which we have to come to worship Him so that our worship may be acceptable. We will also see later that God rejected the worship that was not done on His terms in His, requir in his required way. Modern Americans, uh, us, I'm not speaking as if though I am not one, but in our modern day and age, it seems that we take for granted completely uh, 
that God will accept whatever we throw at Him. It's almost like, it's almost like we, we're throwing, throwing something at God, you know, like a tip. Um, people say things like, ah, Jacques, but you're, re you're referring to the Old Testament. You're referring to the Old Testament. And that's the, th that's the bone I have to pick with charismania. Um, they literally treat God like the Old Testament is over and gone with. Like the God of the Old Testament changed his mind, changed his heart attitude, and now he became loving. That, friends, is a matter of fact, one of the most ancient heresies that ever existed called Marcionism, where Marcion believed that Jesus was God's expression of grace and the God the Father of the Old Testament was His expression of wrath. That is not true. That, that is simply not true. God is one God. It's called the simplicity of God. That's another attribute of God, the simplicity of God. He doesn't change. Every single attribute of God the Father is true for God the Son. And, he, and not only is it true, they are equally the same. For instance, the holiness of God the Father, Jesus is holy in the same way, equally holy. The Holy Spirit is equally holy. There is no inconsistency with them. She cannot just throw the Old Testament away, except for Jeremiah 29, 11, which, by the way, you cannot just fish out a verse out of the Old Testament, out of context, and that's the only verse you use in the Old Testament. Now we have to look at the whole entire counsel of God. And here we see that God rejects worship, but He's still the same God that we worship today. How is it that He's changed His standards? He did not. So people say, well, Jacques, you're referring to the Old Testament. Those standards no longer are required. In fact, I'd like to bring to you that God's standards for our worship in the New Testament ought to be higher because to whom much is given, much is required. So let me ask again, what makes us so sure that our worship is accepted before the Lord? What makes you so sure that when you worship Him, He receives that worship? Now, to answer the question thoroughly, we have to start by asking the question, of what does worship mean? The word worship, as we've explained multiple, multiple times in the past, is the word worth-ship. Worth-ship. That's where the word worship comes from. It speaks about ascribing worth to something. It speaks about connecting a value to something. It's worth-ship. So when you are worshiping God, you are ascribing something to Him you are putting a value to Him. That is your worship. When looking at this definition of worship and the understanding as to where it comes from, it is very easy then for us to worship things other than God by ascribing greater value to it than we ought to or um, yeah, connecting a value to it then that's, easy, that's higher than what we connect to God. In other words, it's easy to engage in idolatry. And the way you fall into idol worship is by ascribing that greater worth to things more valuable in your eyes than you would view God to be. Because whatever you value more than the Lord, that is your idols. So let's just talk about idol worship for a second here. Because idol worship is something that we, you know, we never bring clarity to. So we always go like, well, I don't have idols. I don't have idols. Except for I watch American Idol. I uh, don't have idols other than that. Well, 
An idol is anything and everything that you ascribe value to greater than what you ascribe to God. In other words, everything we do is worship. Everything we value, everything we pursue, any of those can be idols. For instance, everything we do, including our jobs, our careers, sports, when these things become of greater worth to us than Christ, when we place it at a higher place in our priority list than God, then we have engaged in idol worship. The things we do could be an idol. Secondly, the things we value could be an idol. For instance, our homes, our families, our children, our retirement funds, our investments. Attaching greater value to any of these than what we do to Christ makes those things our idols. So we recognize that anything we do could become an idol. Anything we possess value, that can be an idol. But also anything we pursue could be an idol. For instance, peace. If peace is more important to you than truth, you have an idol, right? I love how, I remember once we, we, there, was a, there was a prayer meeting held downtown and they rented out one of the indoor stadiums and um, the announcement went out, please bring your churches, everybody, all churches together. Let's go and pray together. We need to pray. It's time to pray. Everybody agrees it's time to pray. But unfortunately, you know, you have some flag-waving flag churches and you have some, some crazies out there, right? And so now we're going to all get together and pray. And so when the statement was made, well, like, I don't think we can because we're not the same. The answer was, the, the call was, isn't unity most important? Isn't unity most important? Well, no, it's not. Truth is more important than unity. Because if you pursue something and you place a value to it higher than God, it's become your idol. For instance, pursuing peace. Many times, even in relationships, people will compromise in their relationship for the sake of peace. In other words, they will say, you know what? Um, I, just want, I just want peace. I just want peace in my home. So what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to walk away from this verse and from that verse I'm going to walk away from all the requirements that God has given us as a household. Uh, I just want peace. Well, that is you making peace an idol. No, no, no. God is more important than the peace you want to feel. I'll give you another example. Comfort. When we place, when we put comfort above God, it's more important for us to be comfortable than what it is for us to serve God. We have made comfort an idol. Here's another striking one, health. Some people simply won't serve God because they've always got a tummy ache, right? They just can't, no. Not going to, I've always got a problem. You really should start reading not just the Fox's Book of Martyrs, but you should really start reading through the ancient, uh, through the Puritans. See how those guys served the Lord. I mean, a hundred years ago, people weren't healthy. They didn't live long. But man, were they committed. You go like, well, you shouldn't take deaths Death so lightly. I'm like, I know, but you shouldn't take eternal life that lightly. <laughs> right. 
So in other words, we can, we can turn idols into everything we do, our careers and our jobs and our sport. We can turn idols into everything we value, our homes and our family and our children and our retirement funds and our investments. We can turn into idols everything we pursue, like for instance, peace or comfort or health. We pursue accomplishments. We pursue to acquire. These things can all become idols. But to flip the light switch and to make sense of it all is simply to say, whatever you value beyond your value for God and His work is your idol. So I would dare to say that our entire world system is in fact wired around idol worship. I mean, if you think about these definitions of idols, idol worship, it's almost like it's permeated our lives where health is the most important, comfort is the greatest pursuit, happiness is most important. If you ask any parent, what do you wish for your child? They would say that they one day be happy. No, it's that they one day be holy and serving God. That should be your highest, right? In 1 John 2.15 it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now he did not say, do not have anything in the world. He says, do not love it. It's the value you connect to something. It's the value you ascribe to something. Now in the Old Testament, we have uh, another example of how serious God was about worshiping Him on His terms. Uh, he made very sure we were clear over the fact that worship was not to be an afterthought. Worship was supposed to be at the front of our minds. It was never supposed to be something we do when the band is sounding good. <laughs> it's not something we're supposed to do when. Um, uh, man, somebody would say, oh man, I'll tell you what, we had such a fantastic worship event. You should have heard that worship team was excellent. They came all the way from, from Australia and they were so fantastic. We were lost in the presence of God. It's like, no, look, folks, uh, this is a person whose worship is a result of something other than God. Right? You should have that fantastic worship when there's no band. <laughs> worship was never something we ought to have. Um, as an afterthought. In Leviticus 9, verse 22, Leviticus 9, 22 and 24, we get this, this powerful moment followed by a very surprising moment. Watch this. It says, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. Can you imagine this? And the pieces of fat on the altar, that was all consumed by this fire of God. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. How would you like to have experienced that worship service? 
how God just appears in fire and He consumes that offering. But then watch this surprising thing that happens. Right after that in Leviticus 10, verse 1 and 2, it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, I practiced those names, by the way. <laughs> Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, sons of Aaron, each took his censer, yeah, and he put his fire in it and laid incense on it and offered, watch this, unauthorized fire before the Lord. Unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. In other words, here again, they're doing something God did not command them. And it says, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. It's like, all right, Lord, here's an offering. Boom, dead. Wow. Oh, gee. I was just trying to give you an offering. Yeah, well, it wasn't the one I told you to give. <laughs> Think about it. I mean, seriously, the Lord is not playing when it comes to worshiping Him. How would you like to have attended that worship service? You got your offering in your hand. You're the next up, the guy in front of you. It's like, oh, <laughs> I don't know about this. <laughs> what am I doing with my offering? Well, you better know how God requires you to bring it. And you better know what God requires for it to be. You better know the terms upon which to bring God this offering. That's how I felt once I went to court. You know, sometimes you have to sit and you have to wait for the clerks. All I had to do was to go and pay a fine. It wasn't much. And I'm sitting there. And the guy in front of me, I kid you not, he goes to pay his fine. It was like 10 cops came out from everywhere, grabbed him, cuffed him, and walked him out. And the lady goes, next. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know about He must have gone really fast or something. <laughs> but here's the guy. He brings his offering, and God kills him. Why? Because it was an unauthorized fire before the Lord. Another example of how serious God takes um, our act of worship before Him is in 2 Samuel 6, verse 3 and 7. 2 Samuel 6, verse 3 and 7. It says, And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. Practice that too. Which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Io, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Io went before the ark. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, uh, Uzzah, the son of Abinadab, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. Why? Because the oxen stumbled. Now you can imagine there's this flatbed pulled by oxen. They put this Ark of the Covenant upon this flatbed and they are pulling it through the field. Of course, the oxen stumbles and this Ark of the Covenant is about to tip over off of the flatbed. This man that is part of the procession reaches out to stop the Ark of God from tipping over. And as he touches the Ark, look at what happened. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah for touching the ark, because you're not allowed to touch it. And God struck him down there because, he's, because of error. And he died there beside the ark. So, 
If God says, don't touch the ark, don't touch the ark. It's all on God's, it's all on God's terms. And now what, what charismatic people want to teach is that God is no longer like that. You mean to say that He became better? You mean to say that He's mutable? He's changeable? He's not. He's exactly the same as He always has been. He wants absolute, a perfect heart, worshiping Him with a perfect offering in the perfect way. That's God's standards, and those standards haven't, haven't dropped. <clears throat> so how do we then worship God in a way that God accepts our worship? Well, Jesus, as a matter of fact, explained this kind of worship to a woman at the well. She was a Samaritan, and Jewish men and Samaritan women never spoke, except for Jesus spoke to her. Here in John 4, verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Why is she saying that? Because Jesus said to her, Hey, you had five husbands. You've been divorced five times. And the one you're with right now, you're not even married to. She went, Whoa, you must be a prophet. And then she changes the subject. Now that Jesus put his finger on her sin, she changes the subject. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So she was saying, Samaritans worship on this mountain, you Jews worship over there, on that mountain. He said, well, believe me, the hour is coming when Samaritans won't be worshiping on that mountain and Jews won't be worshiping on that mountain. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. From the Jews. In other words, Jesus is coming from the Jews. Verse 23, speaking of himself. But in verse 23, he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. They will worship God, God in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. There's the requirement. There's the requirement. To worship God in truth and to worship Him in spirit. So we have to ask the question, well, what does that mean? What does this mean? To worship... God in truth is to worship the true God. To worship God in truth is to worship the true God, the God of Scripture, not the God of flag-waving, anti-scriptural churches, not the God of non-practicing, believing churches, but the God of the Bible. Not the God of mainstream contemporary Christianity, but the God of Scripture. That is true worship. The problem with sincerity is that people also may worship the true God, but in an insincere way. So really what we're driving towards here is that true worship is when the vessel, in all sincerity, worships the God of Scripture. This is true worship. Because let's say, for instance, you have a person who's very insincere for 
purposes other than glorifying God, rather than rather purposes of glorifying himself. He worships the true God. That's not true worship. If the insincere person worships the true God, that is not true worship. If the sincere person married, uh, uh, worships a non-scriptural Jesus, that's not true worship either. So true worship would be made up of a person with a sincere heart worshiping the scriptural Jesus, the God of the Bible. Because the problem with insincere worship becomes evident when people can't, uh, they can't worship because the music isn't their style, they don't like that hymn, the sound is too loud, the sound is too soft. The problem with insincere people is they can't serve God because they don't like the people involved. The excuses as to why they cannot value the things of God is never-ending. That is this problem of being insincere. This is the accusation of God accusing people of honoring me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You all familiar with that verse? He says, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is somewhere else. That is a vessel with an insincere heart worshiping the Bible, the God of the Bible. That is not true worship. Your heart has to be in it. Your spirit has to be in it. You have to worship God in spirit and in truth. Then there's the problem with truth itself. So to explain this, let me, let me give you a scenario. Let's say, for instance, I have somebody comes to me and said, Hey, I just ran into your wife at Walmart. I'm like, oh, that's nice. Man, I tell you what, I, she is so impressive. You know, just her heart for God. She has such a heart for God. She knows Scripture so well. I'm like, well, that's my wife right there. She has a heart for God. And she knows Scripture well. And he said, and then, the, then what she did was, she, she says, what do you have? What do you have to pick up? And I said to her, well, here's my to-do list that my wife gave me. She goes, well, let me help you find it. I know the store like the back of my hand. And I said, wow, she's so, she is so generous. Not only does she have a heart for God, she's so helpful. And then what she did was she was in her wheelchair. I'm like, wheelchair? You know, I'm like, where were you guys again? He said, Walmart. I'm like, Walmart? She hates Walmart. She doesn't have a wheelchair. He goes, I kid you not. I was so blessed by her. She is so wonderful. You, you married such a lovely woman. Loves God, fears the Lord, is so generous. She said, she's going to show me all that I have to pick up. And then she's going to help me to the cashier and she's going to pay our bill. She wanted to bless our family. Wow, I am so blessed by this wife of yours. And I'm like, wow, I'm still stuck at the wheelchair thing. <laughs> and I said, this is Tina Jacobs, my wife? He goes, yeah, that short little lady with a bleach blonde spiked hair. I'm like, well, you're not talking about my wife. That's not Tina. And evidently, he was highly impressed with this Tina that was not my wife. <laughs> he was impressed with how kind and helpful she was, but not impressed with how kind and helpful my wife is, how kind and helpful somebody else is. Even though he thought he was referring to Tina, my wife, he wasn't referring to her. He was impressed with somebody completely different than her. 
Well, in the very same way, watch this, being excited about God when you have the wrong facts and truths about who He is is empty emotionalism. You're all impressed, all excited, and all blessed by a God that is not the God of the Bible, but a God of your imagination. It is not acceptable to worship if you worship a God that is not found in Scripture. That is not worshiping in spirit and truth. That is worshiping spirit and imagination. Follow what I'm saying? In fact, in that case, you're worshiping a God of your own imagination. If we look around, we'll see so much of that in our modern culture. Worshiping the God of the imagination. In this culture, this is the God of popular Christian media. He's soft. He's fuzzy. He's non-judgmental. Oh, he's so refreshing. He's not non-judgmental. I just love him. He's positive. He's encouraging. And he's on K-Love every day. I just love that God all day long. I love him. God is basically the good vibes only God. Good vibes only. He is, in fact, the life coach in the sky. Coach me. Help me. My life is going to be so awesome. I love you. <laughs> that is not true worship because that is possibly a person with a sincere heart worshiping a God that is not found in the Bible. It's worshiping a spirit, but not in truth. And he was very clear to the woman, to the Samaritan woman. He says, in that day, you won't worship me on that mountain or you won't worship God on that mountain. You will worship him in what? Spirit and truth. All right. So it's very important for us to understand who God is so that we can worship him for who he is. That is worshiping him in truth. People say, hey, it doesn't matter what your doctrine is. God is here to help, live you, help you live a better life and stay encouraged. No, to worship Him in truth and to worship Him as the true God, which is, it has to be the God of the Scriptures. Um, there's so many examples of this. Let's just give you one. How many of you remember like some, like the Ashbury Revival, revivals that happen usually on campuses at colleges and so forth? You know, people just fly out from all over the world and they get together and they sing songs, Right? These are revivals, so they say. When you get there to these revivals, which I grew up in, and we used to travel to these places, right? I've seen many of them. I've seen them on campus. I saw them at school. Um, when you get to these revivals, people sing and sing and sing and sing and And they don't, they don't go to the Scriptures and teach or study the attributes of God, let's say. And they don't study doctrine, let's say. Why not? Because the moment you do that, people usually separate, and then there's no more unity, right? And so instead of turning to doctrine and finding out exactly who this God is so that we can worship Him in truth, they go like, no, no, no doctrine because doctrine divides us, it ends the unity, and then it ends the whole revival. So put your Bibles down, raise your hands, close your eyes, and enjoy the wonderful music and get caught up in the emotion of it. So instead of studying doctrine, they would rather sing. 
That's the only possible way of having those revivals. Everybody's united singing about the understanding of who they believe God is without any arguments, without any disagreements, without any requirements. They sing about wanting to know Him more. I want to know you more. We want to know you more. We want to feel you. We want to experience you, God. We want to know you. The question is, why don't you then stop singing, open up your Bible, and let's talk about doctrine. You'll know Him. No, but that doesn't work for those revivals because that's not what those revivals are about. It's not worshiping Him in truth. It's worshiping Him in your truth. And that is an idol. Why open up the Bible and study who God is? Because that's where He is revealed to us. So I've personally been told that doctrine divides. They say doctrine gets in the way of loving Jesus, and loving Jesus is what matters ultimately. That's true, but my question would be, which Jesus are we loving here? <laughs> you know, it's true, we have to love Jesus, but my question is, which one is He? Can the real Jesus stand up, please? The prophet Hosea had to deal with this exact same issue. And this is how the Lord responded through the mouth of the prophet in Hosea chapter 6, 6. It says, For I desire loyalty rather than sacrifice. I want you to be loyal to who I am long before you start bringing your sacrifices and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I want you to know Him long before you come and bring all of your sacrifices, your offerings and your burnt offerings and your worship the most important thing here is that you know who He is so that when you bring Him an offering, you know who you're bringing the offering to. When you sing a song to Him, at least you know who you're singing to. I require loyalty, God says. Commitment to my word rather than your empty worship. I require you to know me rather than bringing me more offerings of that empty worship. You see, knowing God is in fact to worship Him in a pleasing way. I want to just read to you this quote from MacArthur. He says it so clearly. He says that the deeper your understanding of God Himself, the higher your worship goes. Worship is directly correlated to understanding. The richer your theology, the more full your grasp of a biblical truth. And as a result, the more elevated your worship becomes. You don't have to turn the music on for me to worship. A low, superficial, and shallow understanding of God leads to shallow, countless hysteria. Excuse me, contentless, I thought. Let me read that sentence. He says, a low, superficial, and shallow understanding of God leads to shallow, contentless hysteria. You can create the kind of frenzy, but it has nothing to do with worship. It's sheer hysteria in a mindless expression. So, very, very easily understood that your view of God determines your, the value that you ascribe to Him. Um, your understanding of who He is allows you to worship Him to that degree. So you see how your good intentions are not enough. You must worship God with an accurate doctrine. You have to worship God for who He is. So we're going to wrap this up by concluding the three prerequisites for God to accept your worship. Three prerequisites for God to accept your worship. The first is, in order to worship God in spirit, a person must be regenerated. In other words, a person must be a born-again believer. You can't, an unsafe person cannot worship God. A person who is spiritually dead cannot worship God in the spirit. 
or cannot worship the God who is spirit. The things of the spirit are foolishness to that unsaved person. That is why he naturally engages in idol worship. That's all they can do is they can attach worth to things other than God because they don't know him at all. So in order to worship Him in spirit, a person has to be born again. A person has to come to God sincerely. Secondly, we must first know the truth about God before we can worship Him in truth. We must have the Bible truth about who God is in order to worship Him for who He is. Uh, we, cannot get, we cannot be getting excited about God, sing to Him, clap and dance, all in the name of the Lord, but we do not know the truth about Him because we refuse to study who he is. And then finally, number three, we must worship God on the basis of our faith in Christ. Uh, now, last week what we did was um, we talked about how there isn't really anything I do that is perfect before God 24-7 for the rest of my life. There's nothing I do perfectly before God. I don't believe perfectly. I don't repent perfectly I don't love God perfectly 24-7 I don't love Him with my whole heart all the time I don't love Him with my entire mind all the time I do not give Him the honor He deserves to have as God I fall short in every single one of those ways that's why you know we have fallen short of the glory of God even my good deeds, I cannot bring to God. To Him, those are filthy rags. So what we have to do is throw all of our sins on a heap, and on top of our sins, throw our good deeds, and then we repent from them all. So sorry, Lord, none of it's perfect. Some of it I was impressed with, <laughs> by the way. And then I put my faith in them. How stupid of me. I repent. God, I need you. I beg you for mercy. Because the biggest sin is you not throwing your good deeds on top of that pile. That's a big sin because that's self-righteousness. You're holding on to your good deeds for what? They're not even perfect. So how do we come? We come in faith. We come in Christ. That is the only absolute only reason why we can come to the ark, touch it, and not die, because we are in Christ. That's why we can go into the Holy of Holies and worship Him and not die. That's why we can bring our offering, as insignificant as it may be, and as imperfect of an offering it is, we're not always sincere. And we could bring it to God in Christ. 1 Peter 2 verse 4 and 5 says, as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. How? Through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. Your worship, 
is imperfect, therefore declined by heaven, rejected by God, but in Christ accepted. Apart from Christ, I cannot offer worship that is acceptable to God. This shows that not only is Jesus worthy of our worship, but He makes us worthy to worship. He is not only worthy of it, but He makes your worship worthy, acceptable to God. Even when I worship, I realize that I do this on the basis of mercy. I don't come to Him because He's going to be impressed with what I bring Him. No, I come to Him not because He needs what I have. No, I come to Him on the basis of mercy. God, thank You for Your mercy. That's why when we get ready to worship the Lord, <clears throat> we should say, God, thank You for sufficient amount of mercy that I may even come and do this and that You would even accept it. Entering God's presence should have killed me just like it did Uzzah. But here we are living in the presence of God because of the mercy that He has given us, the opportunity to be in Christ. So for us, for our worship to be acceptable, number one, it must be in spirit. In other words, you must be born again, a believer in Christ, and then in spirit meaning you have to come to Him sincerely. I come to you sincerely. Secondly, we have to know who He is. So the vessel is sincere, and the God whom we worship is the God of Scripture. And we do this in Christ Jesus. That's why our worship becomes acceptable to God the Father. Amen.